This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast. One in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. By 2001, when the bodies of eight murdered women were found at a cotton field in Ciudad Juarez, the femicides along the border had been going on for eight years. But the savagery of the cotton field murders and the brazenness of the criminals who carried them out sent shockwaves through the city. After the eight victims were discovered, Oscar Maynes and his staff of forensic examiners set to work processing the evidence in the case. The first step was trying to determine the identity of the victims. The first tissue sample we sent for DNA testing to the federal police lab, I sent one of my colleagues with it. I said, give this to the lab director and get his signature. I didn't want to send it to the public prosecutor's office and have them send it to someone else. You will personally deliver it and have him sign for it, right? I want the chain of custody to be very short. Maynes and his staff were beginning to see problems with the state's evidence against the two cottonfield suspects. Gustavo González Mesa and Victor García Uribe. Authorities said the two bus drivers had used an old brown van to abduct and murder the eight victims. Maynes's forensic technicians combed the van for hair and tissue. They applied luminol to see if there were any traces of blood. Everything was clean. And Maynes still hadn't received the results of the DNA test to identify the victim's remains from the federal police lab. When I questioned why they hadn't sent us the results, they told me it wasn't enough tissue to run the test, which was absurd. No, we sent enough tissue. For some reason, they were holding back the results. So it came as a shock when Chihuahua's attorney general called a press conference and read off the names of the eight Cottonfield victims, which had supposedly been provided by the suspects in the case. In fact, the names had been randomly drawn from a list of women who were missing in Juarez. Maynes went to Sully Ponce, who was now head of Chihuahua's justice system after 18 months 
leading the task force to investigate the serial murders in Juarez. Maynes told Ponce that based on the evidence he had processed, the two bus drivers were probably not the perpetrators of the Cottonfield crimes. Sully and I always had a conflicting relationship when I was working there. I obviously knew how the justice system works in Mexico. I tried to keep my corner in order, the expert analysis area, and see if that would catch on in other areas. I remember very well that she told me that we had to be institutional. So my answer was that the institution is the public prosecutor's office, not the public prosecutor. Institutions function regardless of their members, right? So then I'm institutional with the prosecutor's office, not with the public prosecutor. Authorities had alleged that the two cotton-filled suspects got high on cocaine and marijuana before they went out on their killing sprees. But drug tests at the state's transportation office for both suspects were negative. An agent of the public prosecutor's office took my nest out for lunch with a request. They wanted for us to run some toxicology tests that were positive for drugs. I said, I wasn't going to do it. I told him, I didn't gather that evidence. He told me, well, it's an order from the prosecutor. I said, well, tell the prosecutor to give me the order in writing and then we'll talk. So obviously the prosecutor was not going to do that. So that's when the situation started to get very tense. This is episode 7 of The Red Note, part 2 of the Cottonfield case. My name is Lydia Cacho. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In the eyes of the Juarez authorities, the Cottonfield case was closed. The two bus drivers accused of the murders had been arrested and remanded to state custody just days after the bodies of eight women were discovered in November 2001. 
state forensics chief, Oscar Mines, wasn't convinced. Mines thought the idea that the killers had used the same van to transport so many bodies to a single spot inside the city limits without being noticed was implausible at best. He was certain that at least some of the victims were being murdered by an organized network with the resources to carry out these complex killings, dispose of the bodies, and avoid detection. Under pressure from his superiors to fabricate evidence in the Cottonfield case, Maynes was tempted to resign, but he needed to make sure that the evidence and reports that he and his forensic team had compiled would not be doctored by the authorities. What I didn't want was for them to plant evidence or alter anything before I left. When the file went to court, it was harder for them to alter it. What I basically did was to protect the file so that it wouldn't be altered once it arrived in court with fabricated evidence and it got there untouched. The final file didn't have anything to link the drivers to homicides. No physical, circumstantial evidence, nothing. After months of fighting to prevent fabricated evidence from getting into the bus driver's files, Maynes resigned from the forensics office in early 2002. I finally handed in my resignation, but I would have been kicked out five minutes later, right? Because I wasn't aligning with the official version of what had happened. I mean, people with more flexible ethics are the ones who stay and the rest just live. It happens in all those kind of systems. Despite the efforts of local officials to contain the story, the Cottonfield murders in Chihuahua had become national news. In November 2000, Vicente Fox Quesada, a businessman and former governor of the state of Guanajuato, had been sworn into office as Mexico's 55th president. President Fox was a member of Mexico's conservative party, PAN. His victory was a historic milestone for Mexico. In the 70-plus years since democracy was restored, Fox would be the country's first president from outside its ruling party, the PRI. President Fox announced that he was forming a commission led by the Federal Attorney General's office to review the conduct of state and city officials in the Juarez serial murders investigations. He ordered all files about the murders to be transferred to federal investigators by January 2002. The national controversy over the Cottonfield case forced the resignation of several officials who were leading the serial murders investigation in Chihuahua. Shortly after Fox's January deadline, Sully Ponce resigned from her new position as head of the state's justice system. 
only a handful of the case files requested by the Federal Commission had been handed over. Ponce was quickly appointed to be Chihuahua's Minister of the Interior. Activist and politician Vicky Caraveo. I think that Suli, after some years and when she realized the power that was given to her and granted for so many years, because it's not for a lifetime, and that the, the mark she left was not a pretty mark. It's a mark of resentment, of rage, of supporting the authorities and nothing else. There's nothing else. No care was taken with the evidence, nor with the files. Nothing was taken care of. The worst tragedy is that there are women who support these kind of wrongdoings. That there are women who, to save face with a boss, with businessmen who are very upset, who say we're burning down Ciudad Juarez, end up saying and doing things that are going to hurt all of us women. It won't happen at this precise moment specifically, but it's bad for all of us. In El Paso, the FBI's field office was getting calls from journalists and activists in the U.S. who wanted to know if the agency was planning to get involved in the serial murders investigations on the other side of the border. The FBI had played an active role in the Juarez serial murders investigation during the 1990s including visits from profiling legend Robert Ressler and several other agents from the Bureau. Since then, the agency had kept its distance. The FBI El Paso Bureau Chief Hardwick Crawford Jr. was eager for the Bureau to lend a hand in the serial murders investigation. Journalist Diana Washington Valdez Harvard Crawford, because of his personality, he became very intrigued by the femicides, you know, launched out. And I think he would like to have, like these governors of Mexico, he would like to have had a feather in his cap, being the special agent in charge that provided the resources that maybe finally got to the bottom of what was happening. You know, help the Mexican police do a real investigation and solve these murders. I think his, his intentions were very good, and he was able to point out a lot of things. Uh, but that also became a liability for him. He made frequent visits to Juarez, uh, and of course, anytime an FBI special agent goes to Juarez, it's like the president of the United States going to Juarez. It's a big deal. The media was always observing him, and others uh, were always observing him such as the drug cartel people, Mexican law enforcement that was in cahoots with the drug cartels. They were watching him. 
Hardwick Crawford Jr. is the special agent in charge of the FBI just across the border in El Paso. Because he must work with Mexican law enforcement on, for example, drug cases, he chooses his words carefully. In January 2002, ABC's 2020 broadcast a special report on the Juarez serial murders. Crawford agreed to be interviewed for the program. After the segment aired, Washington Valdez writes that he reached out to Chihuahua and Mexican federal authorities to offer the FBI's help. The 2020 crew also spoke with Sergio Dante Almaraz and Mario Escobedo Anaya. The two lawyers who were now representing the accused cotton field suspects. Escobedo Anaya was planning to file a complaint against the Chihuahua State Police, which accused them of torturing his client Gustavo Gonzalez Mesa into confessing to the cotton field murders. Soon after, the attorney began receiving threatening phone calls. On the evening of February 5th, 2002, Escobedo Anaya was driving home from work when he realized that he was being tailed by an unmarked SUV. As the attorney tried to call his father on the phone for help, a high-speed chase began. The SUV opened fire, and Escobedo Anaya's truck crashed. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Escobedo's family soon learned that the shooting had been carried out by officers from the state police. After the crash, witnesses reported that one of the officers climbed on top of the attorney's vehicle, shooting him at point-blank range. State police officials said the shooting was the result of mistaking identity. Officers thought they were chasing a drug dealer and started shooting when Escobedo ignored their commands to pull over. They said the attorney had actually opened fire on them before the crash. Escobedo's father called a press conference and scoffed at the police version of events. How could his son have been driving in high-speed chase, talking to his father on the phone and firing a gun at the same time? Oscar Minas. I remember when Gonzalez's attorney was killed. There was a car chase and they killed, executed Gonzalez's defender. Then a scandal blows up, and I'm in Mexico City. I'm in the office of a senator because I was invited to talk about the problem in Chihuahua, the abuse and everything that was going on. And right then, the newspaper El Norte de Ciudad Juarez arrives with photos, where the government presented evidence that it wasn't an execution, that it was a shootout, that the police car had bullet holes. So when they showed me the picture, he says, look, here it is. I told him, the bullets are on the wrong side. If the shootout happened as described, the bullets should be here. I mean, they put them on the wrong side. <laughs> so 
that's where it fell apart everything, right? Well, that's the way it is. They make up things to... But anyway... In July 2002, the FBI's El Paso bureau chief, Hardrick Crawford, made a surprise appearance in Chihuahua at an academic conference about the serial murders. He called the femicides that had been taking place for 10 years in Juarez a crime against humanity. After Crawford's remarks made headlines in Mexico, President Fox publicly seconded Crawford's call for a binational investigation into the serial murders. Crawford contacted the FBI headquarters in Quantico to ask for help from the profilers who had flown to the city in 1999. He asked an official at the El Paso field office to lead the investigation in case Fox was really serious about cooperating. In October, the Chihuahua Attorney General's office ran a routine DNA test to confirm the identities of the eight Cottonfield victims. An Amnesty International report found that, to the shock and dismay of the families, the tests contradicted the results that had been announced by officials. In only one victim did the DNA match the name that had been read at the press conference. Amid this confusion, Victor Garcia Uribe went on trial for the Cottonfield murders in October 2004. Other than Garcia Uribe's confession, there was little to no evidence tying him to the eight murders. Nevertheless, Garcia Uribe was found guilty and sentenced to 50 years in prison for the Cottonfield killings. In the face of overwhelming evidence that these people were not the culprits, that they were tortured to confess, they even testified to the media when they were introduced I, and they showed their genitals with electric burns and the judges still sentenced them. The most interesting part is that the judge... Oh, because a judge who didn't want to take the case because there was pressure to sentence them with no evidence was fired already, taken out of the system, and the judge who did, who even offered to do it, ended up as president of the state's court of justice, and they retire with a very good pension. That's the problem, isn't it? Since judges basically do what the governor tells them. Well, because their salary, their job, which is very well compensated, depends on that, because it's very easy to remove them. If you act right, the system spits you out, and that's why only the worst of the worst gets to keep positions. Although he was set to serve 50 years in prison for the Cottonfield murders, by now, Garcia Uribe had a powerful ally working on his behalf. Guadalupe Morfin, the federal investigator who had been appointed to lead President Vicente Fox's commission 
to investigate the Juarez serial murders. At the time she was appointed, Morphine says that the Cottonfield murders had created huge international and national pressure on Mexican authorities to take action. It's a topic that started to make people uncomfortable, even people from Juarez themselves, because they said that when they traveled abroad, they are immediately labeled as if the entire city would kill and disappear women. And this led the administration of President Vicente Fox, along with another report from the National Human Rights Commission following the femicides, and many other civil society activities to take action on the subject. During this third State of the Nation report, he announced the creation of a commissioner, a woman in this case, for this issue in Ciudad Juárez. And so I was appointed in October 2003 until the last day of November 2006 as commissioner to prevent and eradicate violence against women in Ciudad Juárez. Morphine filed a motion stating that García Uribe had been tortured by police into confessing to the Cottonfield murders and that the charges against him should be overturned due to the lack of other evidence. In July 2005, after nearly four years in captivity, a Chihuahua state judge ruled that conviction had been based on unreliable testimony. Garcia Uribe had spent his life savings defending himself against the Cottonfield allegations. He had lost his business and lost his wife who left him for another man while he was in prison. His co-defendant, Gustavo González Mesa, was also cleared of any wrongdoing in the Cottonfield murders. But González had been dead for more than a year. In 2003, he was found unresponsive in his cell at the maximum security prison in Chihuahua City. Oscar Maynez, says that he was told González Mesa had died of a septic infection that developed after he underwent a hernia operation. His relatives said that they were never even told the operation had taken place. When González dies, the seal, as they call him, the wife speaks to me and says, Hey, my husband died in a surgical procedure because apparently he had a hernia from the injuries the police had inflicted on him when he was arrested. I talked to him in the morning. Then he died of a complication of sepsis infection. And I asked her, you talked to him in the morning and he didn't tell you if he had fever, he was in pain? No, no, he was fine. And I said, no. This kind of disease or health issue has, there's a process, right? You develop the fever. So when we questioned the autopsy, they altered it. And when they present the signature, the document in which the driver authorized the surgical procedure, the signature was forged. So it's all, it's surreal, but that's how it works. Officials in Chihuahua 
never opened a new investigation to determine who was responsible for the Cottonfield crimes. They were now maintaining that the eight murders were unrelated. The authorities, when it suits them, say the bodies are related, and when it doesn't suit them, they say they're not related. In the case of these drivers who were kidnapped and tortured so that they would confess, when they go their confession, then for the authorities, all the bodies are related, and that means that all the cases are solved. When the case drags on and these drivers are acquitted, then just like that, the murders were now unrelated, right? In fact, the official version, the official claim these days is that they are isolated events. You have two sets of bodies deposited in a non-urbanized area in a single file, like this, in a row. And the authorities considered them isolated cases, so it was just incidental for the murders, the killers, to drop the bodies there. And then it's just absurd. They, they refused to accept that this is something that is well organized. Because either they, they protected someone, they're afraid of someone, or they, they just, they believe it's too much trouble. Because if they, are, if, they, if they acknowledge that there is an organized group behind this, or groups, I mean, they need extra resources, extra work, and most of the people who run the police cooperation are politicians, so they don't care about criminal investigation. or They just want to end their period, make money, and then move on to another. By 2005, the 10-year statute of limitations was about to expire for some of the earliest victims of the Juarez serial murders. The families of these women hoped that the new DNA results could help them win an extension in their daughters' cases. Diana Washington Valdez. The laws to do away, the law proposals to do away with the statute of limitations uh, have never been successful. There were efforts, uh, legislators tried to change that. I mean, how can you have a, uh, a statute of limitation on murder, you know? But nevertheless, that is the law. And uh, yes, there's desperation when that uh, calendar date comes around for the families. Guadalupe Morfin invited the Argentine forensic anthropology team to fly to Juarez so they could perform the DNA test requested by the victims' families. The Argentinian team had helped to identify thousands of disappeared persons from the country's dirty war during the 70s and 80s. In the years since, the team had helped to identify remains from conflict zones across the globe, including Bosnia, Angola, Timor, French Polynesia, and South Africa. But we started to bring them in around 2004, mid-2004, the Argentinian Forensic Anthropology Team. 
the doors were opened for them to perform the work of identifying remains of women who had not been identified or with uncertain identification, and we started to work with the families. The Argentinian experts performed DNA tests on the remains of nearly two dozen people buried in a common grave and several femicide victims, including those found in the abandoned cotton field. Diana Washington Valdez. I think it was probably one of the best things that the Mexican government did for the families because it helped to uh, give a identification a, that could be believed of the bodies of their daughters and mothers and so forth because of the sloppy work that uh, the Mexican authorities had done before that sometimes, you know, involved uh, turning the wrong remains over to a mother and then her having those cremated and then learning later that wasn't her daughter after all. If nothing else, I know for sure that this is my daughter or we were able to identify those remains as being my daughter, now I can bury her. Uh, so uh, this team uh, did meticulous work. They worked uh, in collaboration with the government in agreement to maintain the confidentiality. We don't want to embarrass the government or else if we do that, then they won't invite us back again. The Argentinian experts were able to identify four of the eight cotton field victims Claudia Yvette Gonzalez, Myra Reyes Solis, Brenda Herrera Monreal, and Maria de los Angeles Acosta Ramirez. The identity of a fifth victim, Barbara Martinez Ramos, was confirmed through DNA tests performed by a California laboratory. Vicky Caraveo. Uh, I was there when they exhumed the bodies for the mothers in our group. We had to see if they actually were the girls we had been told or not. I couldn't get the smell out of me. So I'd get up at night and, and I'd see them. Like when you open the box... How you find the body, I never imagined seeing a body exhumed after different lapses. And, oh my God, I don't wish that on anyone. Actually, I don't even wish it on the expert analysts. It's the saddest thing you can imagine. The Argentinian experts were unable to confirm the identities of three of the eight victims. The team sent its results to Chihuahua's new attorney general. She refused to look at the report. Chihuahua authorities later announced that the three other cotton field victims, Barbara Martinez Ramos and Veronica Martinez Hernandez, had been mistakenly reported as dead. They are now considered officially missing by state authorities. Oscar Minas. In fact, to this date, the bodies haven't been fully identified. 
There's a couple of bodies we're certain about, or that I'm certain belong to the official names provided by the state. But in most cases, we aren't 100% sure who they are. Three of the families whose daughters were positively identified filed a lawsuit against the Mexican government that was eventually accepted by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. The court later ruled that due to the many irregularities in the cotton field investigations and other gender-motivated homicides in Chihuahua, the Mexican government was internationally responsible for failing to prevent the three victims' disappearance and murder. The court ordered Mexican authorities to pay integral reparations to the families of the victims and to take measures to address the problem of gender violence in Mexico. Guadalupe Morfin. I was a special attorney for the Federal Attorney General's Office when the cases of the cotton field were brought before the International Court of Human Rights. And that resulted in a sentence that established the obligation for the country of Mexico to have tools throughout its territory to better prevent, investigate, sanction, and repair damages from acts of violence against women. I was very happy with the sentence. Note is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer, it's me, Estefania Bonilla Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, Arturo Mercado Jr., and Genaro Vázquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. Abraham Buendía recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was René Nava. Production bands were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juárez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marvan at Marvan Pitol Abogados. 
The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinoso Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.